Luke 24, 1 to 12. At the crack of dawn on Sunday, the women came to the tomb carrying the burial spices they had prepared. They found the entrance stone rolled back from the tomb, so they walked in. But once inside, they couldn't find the body of the master Jesus. They were puzzled, wondering what to make of this. Then out of nowhere, it seemed, two men, light cascading over them, stood there. The women were awestruck and bowed down in worship. The men said, why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? He is not here, but raised up. Remember how he told you when you were still back in Galilee that he had to be handed over to sinners, be killed on a cross, and in three days rise up? Then they remembered Jesus' words. They left the tomb and broke the news of all this to the eleven and the rest, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, kept telling these things to the apostles. But the apostles didn't believe a word of it, thought they were making it all up. But Peter jumped to his feet and ran to the tomb. He stooped to look in and saw a few grave clothes, that's all. He walked away, puzzled, shaking his head. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you remember the movie Rocky? Okay, we saw it, right? Can anybody hum the theme? Because we get in trouble if we play it, I hear. Can anybody hum the theme? Dun, da, da, dun, da, dun, da, da, dun. Where's my drummers? Where's my drummers? Thank you. Thank you. So many, many years ago when I was still in Mississippi, um, the church that I was in, we decided to do a passion play, you know, where they kind of dramatize everything out on the stage. This was pre-Mel Gibson. We won't even get there, but anyway, uh, so this church was like a fan like this is, but there was a balcony up top that was also a fan. So the musicians and the choir were up in the balcony doing singing and playing the music while the play was going on on the stage. So there were no musicians or anybody else, just the actors. And so we had this young man that got to play Jesus for us, and his name was Joey. And um, Joey was great. Joey, Joey was amazing. Joey might have had one too many beers to actually pull off at the loincloth, but we won't go there. It was Mississippi, what can I say? Joey was great. Joey was great. Is great. Um, but the day of, or the night of, that we performed the play, you know, we had this tomb that somebody had taken so much effort and time to build. It was just magnificent. So he was going to come out of that tomb, right? We had like a strobe light, and like, you know, like you're in the arena at a rock concert or something. And so when we practiced it, Joey would just walk out of the tomb, like, you know, here I am with my strobe lights on me. I'm alive, right? The night we performed this play, this is what Joey did. I hope y'all can see this at home. This is what he did, okay? He came out of the tomb going... That's what Joey did. Now, I don't know if Sylvester Stallone had Jesus' resurrection in mind when he wrote Rocky, but he should have. For me, when I was studying this text, there were three things that stood out to me. I'm going to share those three things with you this morning. I hope they speak to you like they did to me. And if not, at least you look cute, okay? <laughs> Verse 1, 
At the crack of dawn on Sunday, the women came to the tomb carrying burial spices they had prepared. Okay, that stopped me right there, just like you said, Becky. Who were the women? I, I know I ask you a lot to give me a show of hands, but there's so many. I have to ask you this. How many of you have ever heard a preacher talk about who the women actually were at the tomb? Thank you. Thank you. It's kind of rare, right? Well, we don't know a whole lot about them. But I'm going to share with you what I learned. Now, I think that we could really go into the weeds with this one and have a really good time with it. But we don't have time for that, so maybe another time. But I'm going to give us just some high notes of who these women were. Now, the Gospels tell us about five different women that were at the resurrection. There's Mary Magdalene. There is Mary of Clopas, also known as Other Mary. Y'all remember, what was that show, My Brother Daryl and My Other Brother Daryl? Was that New Heart? Who? Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart, yeah. Okay. So there was Mary Magdalene, Mary of Clopas, who was also known as Other Mary, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Salome, I'm sorry, Salome, and Joanna. So let's start with Joanna. Joanna was healed by Jesus of some type of affliction, the text doesn't say. But she, after that, she decided to follow Jesus and fund his ministry. So she was a woman of means. Um, she was also, this one is so interesting to me, was that Joanna had a very interesting husband. Her husband was Herod of Antipas's chief of household. Herod of Antipas, who was, uh, who Pilate sent Jesus to him to sentence him, and Herod said, starts making fun of him and puts the robe on him and says, oh, the king of the Jews, and sends him back to Pilate. That Herod. Her husband is married to the guy that runs his household, and she's supporting Jesus, and Herod did not care for Jesus that much. Very interesting. I'm sure they had great conversations around their dinner table. Salome. She is the mother of James and John, two of the disciples, and her husband was Zebedee. In non-canonical works, she was named as Jesus' mother, and as her sister, as Jesus, as Jesus's mother's sister, so she would have been Jesus's aunt. Don't know that for sure. That's what some non-canonical works say. And then Mary, the mother of James, James was one of the disciples of Jesus and was believed to be a cousin of Jesus. And then the other Mary, or Mary of Clopas. I think this is interesting, and you're going to appreciate this, Becky. She was called Mary of Clopas because her husband's name was Clopas. That's not a place. That's her husband's name. Mary of Clopas. Let that marinate for a second. Tradition has said that Clopas was the brother of Joseph, as in Jesus' father. So she would have been another aunt of Jesus. And then there's Mary Magdalene. She is the only one mentioned in all four Gospels, named in all four Gospels. So let's talk for just a minute about who Mary Magdalene is not, Okay. There are three unnamed women in the Gospels that are expressly identified as sexual sinners. And throughout history, sometimes Mary has been lumped into one of these or all three of these women. There is the woman with a bad name who wipes Jesus' feet with ointment as a signal of repentance. There is a Samaritan woman whom Jesus meets at a well. And an adulteress whom Pharisees haul before Jesus to see if he will condemn her. Mary is none of those. She was not an adulteress, nor was she a prostitute. 
In the 8th chapter of Luke, we are told that she was a woman who had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. And like Joanna, she was a woman of considerable means. And after those demons were passed, cast out of her, she decided, I'm going to fund this guy's ministry and I'm going to go with him. We don't know if she was married, don't know if she was widowed. But we do know that she was at the cross and she, we do know that she was the first one to preach the re resurrection. And she has been properly demonized and sexualized ever since. The rest of the text, let's move on. At the crack of dawn on Sunday, the, woman, the women came to the tomb carrying the burial spices that they had prepared. They found the entrance stone rolled back from the tomb, so they walked in. But once inside, they couldn't find the body of the Master Jesus. So the second thing that I see in this text is Jesus is not where he is supposed to be. He has been raised from the dead. The women were coming to anoint this body as it was decaying so it wouldn't smell so bad. They had a mission, a focus, a purpose. Even through their grief, they had a job to ac accomplish, one last task for Jesus. They had pro financially provided for him. They felt the weight and responsibility of that on them. So they had to go take care of him one last time. The commentary from the New, Interpreter, Interpre ugh, New Interpreter's Bible says it like this. Sometimes faith means going on and tending to the necessary chores. Ain't that a word? In the death of a loved one, things have to be done. I know you know that there are so many details when it comes to planning a funeral of someone we care for. There's so many, so many details. Sorry, could you say that again? <laughs> How about I do this? It, yeah, you know. Sorry, people at home. Siri was being rude. I don't even use Siri. It's cr anyway, I don't know how to. <laughs> Apparently. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> when we're preparing for the burial of someone that we love, we hear this over and over and over that in these moments of planning and taking care of these things, we don't even have time to grieve in that moment because there's just too many things that have to be done and taken care of. We just have to get these last things done for our person. When we're doing that, it's an act of faith and love for our person. But the women got to the tomb and did not know what in the world was going on. Did someone steal the body? Was he moved? What was happening? Or as my mama always says, what in the Sam Hill is going on here? I still have no idea who Sam Hill is. <laughs> and if someone knows, would you kindly please pass that on to me? I've always wondered. We know where Jesus was, but they didn't. They did not know what was going on. And I'm thinking that as they're processing all this is going on, were they thinking, oh, there was those weird things he said. There were some really cryptic, strange, weird, bizarre things he said. Maybe those words are starting to roll around in their head. Like, was this what he meant? Like in Mark's gospel, Jesus is quoted as saying, He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. The text goes on to say, But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. He also began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. I wonder if those words were coming back to them in that moment. 
Maybe they were just too stunned to have any thoughts whatsoever in their head. But we do know the end of this story. Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead. But what does that mean? And specifically, why should that matter to us? N.T. Wright says that three things can give us confidence, confidence that Jesus is risen. The empty tomb, the multiple apparitions, and the seismic change in the followers of Jesus. So the tomb was empty, and over the next 40 days, Jesus would make over 10 appearance, uh, 10 times physically, appear over 10 times physically to people. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul records that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And we have to remember that Paul's writings are the first. Paul's writings were in the 50s, 50 through 60 AD. So only 20 to 30 years after Jesus had died. The Gospels are written way later than that. So Paul's account has a ring of truth. It could be true that it was over 500 people that Jesus appeared to. Gary Wills says that Paul's letters were written long before the Gospels and well within the recent memory of his fellow Christians and their critics. Paul is the first and the steadfast reporter of Jesus' appearances to his followers, including himself. And obviously there was a seismic change in his followers. I mean, a lot of them died for it because they believed in the message of Jesus so much and were willing to die. So why should that matter to us? Why does resurrection matter to us? Because of the kingdom of God. That was the message of Jesus, the kingdom of God. And that was why he killed, was killed, because he preached of the kingdom of God. So what did he mean when he would tell them over and over the kingdom of God is at hand? In Mark, we are told the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come, to, come near. Repent and believe in the good news. In Luke, he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. You know, he uses this phrase, the kingdom of God, almost a hundred times in the four Gospels. He used it so much his followers must have been like, you know, oh my God, if he uses this phrase one more time. But what did he mean by it? Marcus Borg says that the kingdom of God is about a transformed world, a world of justice and plenty and peace where everyone has enough and where in the striking phrase of the prophet Micah, no one shall make them afraid. A place of justice and plenty and peace. And no one shall make them afraid. Jesus was saying to his followers and to us that the kingdom of God can be here. In the right here and right now. Not in the sweet by and by. Not a mansion when we die not a jewel and a crown. It is something that we look forward to. It is something that we can participate in now. Jesus used this political term, kingdom, on purpose, deliberately. Countries were designated kingdom. Jesus could have used any terminology in that moment that he wanted to. He could have said the community of God, the family of God, or the people of God. But he, knew, he used a term that he knew would get him into trouble. He knew that this would get the attention of imperial powers that be. But his intention was to contrast the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of the world. 
The kingdom of God would not look like an imperial powerhouse. The kingdom of God was not about power at all. The cross shows us that. The kingdom of God is about laying down our lives and our own interests for our neighbor. This kingdom that Jesus taught was about nonviolence, not shoving our authority down someone's throat, but to leave, to, but to leave, to, excuse me, but to live peacefully with one another, to not consider ourselves better than our family man, fellow man, but equal. And so let me explain it this way. Let me explain to you what I believe the kingdom of God is not. Let me bring it into 2022. What the kingdom of God is not. The kingdom of God is not a system of domination, exploitation, and leaving people to die in the streets. It is not a system where innocent African-American men are senselessly gunned down by an imperial police system. The kingdom of God is not a system where unsheltered people get kicked out of a place where no one even sees them, rips their tents apart, and put whatever meager belongings they have in the dumpster. The kingdom of God is not a world where women get punched, groped, raped, and told to be quiet and stay in their place by an imperial system that essentially looks the other way. The kingdom of God is not a system where children are physically, sexually, emotionally abused, where that imperial system does not always fight for them. The kingdom of God does not denigrate someone who states their pronouns on their Twitter bio or pass laws that will deny transgender students access to bathroom and locker rooms consistent with their gender identity. Looking at you, Mississippi and Alabama. The kingdom of God is not a preacher with a green room $2,000 sneakers, who has the best speaking abilities with a charismatic personality, who knows all the right people, but what nobody knows is that he has a stack full of NDAs in his filing cabinet with pictures of his smoking hot wife and 2.5 beautiful children on top of that filing cabinet. The life and the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus should compel us to make the kingdom of God a reality in our own small worlds, within our families, within our communities, in our workplaces, in our churches. We, it compels us to think, the imperial system compels us to think that the only one who matters is ourselves and our politics and our way of viewing the world and what's in it for me. And it tells us that our neighbors just need to get a job pull themselves up by their own bootstraps while ignoring our own privilege. An imperial system that says the other is less than us, to be feared by us, to be dismissed by us because we are better. Can anyone imagine Jesus seeing his neighbor this way or supporting a system that props that up? The point of the resurrection is that it's supposed to transform us into a people that create systems of health equity, justice, care, a system that does not leave anyone behind or anyone out. Again, Marcus Borg, the kingdom of God is supposed to be a transformed world, a world of justice and plenty and, and peace where everyone has enough and where, Micah says, no one shall make them afraid. Last point. The text says, out of nowhere it seemed, two men, light cascading over them, stood there. The women were awestruck and bowed down in worship. The men said, 
Why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? He is not here, but raised up. When I begin studying or looking at a text that I know I'm going to be teaching on a Sunday, the first thing I do is I get as many translations as I can and I compare them with each other. And whichever one really jumps out to me, whichever one has like a phrase, a a couple of sentences or something that just, just leaps off the page for me, that's the one that I use. And the reason I chose the message this morning is because of this phrase right here. Why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? That cemetery word stood out for me. Another question where you can, I need you to raise your hands. How many of you like country music? Thank you. I'm so, thank you. I mean, I appreciate this. I know who my people are now. How many, how many of you remember Randy Travis? Like old Randy Travis, like digging up bones. Okay, okay. All right, I see you. All right. Digging up bones. Let me just refresh our memories of the lyrics. I'm going to have to sing it in an exaggerated... I'm going to have to not sing it. I'm going to have to say it in an exaggerated southern voice. That's the only way I can get through this, okay? Last night I dug your picture out from my old dresser drawer. I set it on the table and I talked to it till four. I read some old love letters right up till the break of dawn. Yeah, tonight I've been sitting alone digging up bones. Then I went through the jewelry and I found your wedding rings. I put mine on my finger and I gave yours a fling. Across this lonely bedroom of our recent broken home, yeah, tonight I'm sitting alone digging up bones. I'm digging up bones, exhuming things that are better left alone. I'm resurrecting memories of a love that's dead and gone. Yeah, tonight I'm sitting alone, digging up bones. If you've not had the the joy of hearing that song yourself, you need to Google that this afternoon and listen to it. It's a blessing, I promise. I've shared this with some of you before, so if you've heard it, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to hear it again. I have this lovely, endearing habit to revisit scenes of crimes, crimes against me, in my head, and I imagine myself saying all the witty things back like the things I missed in that moment because you're just like, ooh, 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 ooh. But then later, I'm like, oh, yeah. If I had that to do over again, this is what I'd say, and it would be in this tone of voice, and this person would cry and realize how terrible they are and apologize and grovel and tell me what a wonderful human being I am and how awful they are because I am right and they are wrong. Does anybody else have that habit or do I have some problems? Thank you. Thank you. I actually worked through this exercise yesterday in my head. We were uh, taking a a car to have some tires put on it. And so I'm in the car by myself with my window down. There's lots of traffic, Saturday in Bloomington, Easter weekend. And so in the car, I'm giving this person everything I got. Just, oh, that was Good, that was good, Melinda. You were so clever. And I look over to the car next to me and they're like, (laughs) like they might need to call the police. It feels so good and it is so satisfying. It's the chance to say to ourselves, we really are smart. We really can come back at people. 
we really are right <laughs> and they are wrong. But does it get us anywhere? Let me say this because I know we, I have mental health specialists in the room, so I'm going to say this for their benefit. I don't think this practice is all that bad. I think it might be cathartic. And if I'm wrong about that, I'll hook you up with some mental health specialists right here at Imago who can tell you something different. But that's what I think. I think that the problem is, is when we don't let that go. When we just gnaw that bone. Just gnaw it. Just gnaw it. I think that there are times and spaces where we share those old bone stories with friends. We need that to process, for validation, for gentle correction, or even just a laugh. It can feel good to have a, quote, co-belligerent, unquote, with us. And that term is not mine. It came from John Dominic Crossant, a co-belligerent, and I will use it liberally from now on because I love it. Who doesn't love a co-belligerent? My best friend Andy excels at this for me. <laughs> and long after I finally gave up that bone I'm chewing on, she never forgets. But at some point, it's time to quit looking for the living in the cemetery. At some point, especially when there's unforgiveness or bitterness at the root of our digging up those bones, we have to realize that this mind warp gets us nowhere. Those bones are bones for a reason. We cannot gnaw at that, ball, at that bone forever. We cannot forget that it is just a bone. It is not living. It does not give us life, no abundant life. It keeps us tied down in a cemetery when life is outside the cemetery gates. And from a more practical person uh, perspective, sometimes we just need to hit the unfollow book button on the Facebook. Preaching anybody? We are digging up bones of regret, failure, shame, guilt, and there is no life in those bones. Those women at Jesus' tomb that day, the disciples and the followers that deserted him out of fear at the end of his life, they must have felt regret. Failure, shame, guilt. But those angelic messengers were saying, why are you looking for the living in a cemetery? Life is out there. Let it go. Leave it behind. Leave it in the cemetery. Let the bones go. Forgive. Quit rehearsing your revenge in your head. This only gives us anxiety and fear and keeps us from joy and peace and love. Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead because he wants better for us than that. May this Easter we honor the stories of women. May we know that the purpose of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection was to bring through us the kingdom of God on this earth right now. And may we know that we do not have to stay in the cemetery because life is outside the cemetery gates. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I'm thankful that you remind us 
that there are people who have stories that matter and we should know about them. I'm thankful that you remind us that it's not about getting to heaven. That's not the main focus. It's about bringing heaven here and fighting and working toward those systems that bring health and fairness and equity, justice. May we be those people, God. And God, remind us when we're gnawing on those bones that we're wasting our time, that there are so many other things we could be doing with our lives besides that. There's life outside a cemetery, God. Help us as we search for it and look for it and live it. In your son's name I pray. Amen.